Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night to everyone listening at whatever time you're listening. I am Jordan Anthony Myrick, you can call me Jam for short, and this is the Mental Health Check-In Podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing mental health awareness as a means to help us all heal, because the more we learn, the more we heal. And today, we'll be healing with a therapist and the author of both Crazy and Functional and Functional and Crazy. She is Michelle Manning. How are you doing today, Michelle? I'm very well. Thank you, Jam. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being here. And um, how are you feeling just on a um, spiritual, emotional, physical, mental level? I feel good. I feel elevated, but I am also one of those that has one note. So feeling good and elevated is just kind of how I am most of the time, which gets really annoying to the people in my life. That's interesting. Can you expand on like what that means, both what it means to be one note and what it means to be elevated, especially? So that's a question that I can answer in so many different ways. It's, it's interesting because I come like probably everybody, but I come with a lot of dichotomies. And one of those, I should say, is my quote unquote gender and how that couples with that one note. So in being a woman, identifying as a woman, and then being one note can create some challenges because people will project a lot of sensibilities, a lot of gendered sensibilities onto you. And as a woman who doesn't really have a lot of emotion other than just one that's elevated, it confuses people who have presumptions because I don't do the quote unquote typical gendered things. And I've spent my life, number one, never apologizing for that. So that is not anything that I've ever felt the need to apologize or account for. But number two, educating a lot of people that you can have mutual inclusivity. So I can be a chick and I don't have to emote all the time. You can be, I don't want to say you can be anybody because that's just can be a little strange to hear. But I mean, if we were kind of just phrasing it that way, the notion that things are compartmentalized and can't really speak to each other or exist on the same platform gets really, really frustrating. And like I said, can confuse a lot of people. And if I am someone who is elevated most of the time and I get affected by something, I'm still affected. I can still feel things. The way that I express that feeling or emotion just looks a little different. And I think some people can take that for granted. They will look at me and presume that I'm just happy all the time because I have an affect that kind of presents in a certain way. But then it puts me in a position to, well, you can look or think whatever you want because we can be lots of different things in different ways with many different computations, you know? It brings more variety and diversity. That's really interesting to me, like what you're speaking of, especially in terms of gender, because I recognize that to some extent, I come from a certain place of privilege as my gender because I am a cis male. So I'd never understand the kind of struggles you're going through. So I'm particularly interested to hear, like, how do you navigate that sort of confusion that you've had as far as just, I mean, not confusion you've had, but confusion that other people may have as far as just, you not, as you say, doing gender things or the stereotypes that usually attribute to people who identify as women? So 
I think that one of the times that it became very, very prominent for me in my life when I recognized that there was a, I guess, a difference in who I was and who I was expected to be and how I was expected to function. So I experienced a lot of tragedy when I was younger and part of that tragedy involved my, my, my family, my immediate family. And in that tragedy, a lot of people were having very emotional responses and devastated and sad. And at the time of that experience for me, I was probably about eight or nine. And I just remember feeling pressure, never from my mom, because my mom knew me well enough to know that this is not the way that I express myself. But I just remember feeling so much pressure from the people outside of that immediate family to let it out. You need to let it out. You need to cry. You need to do all of those very gendered things. And they would tell me if I did those things, I would feel better. And I never felt the need to do those things before, but I'd also never really faced this type of tragedy before. And so I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, I guess I'm supposed to cry. And again, I'm nine, so I'm really influenced, you know, by the people in my life, especially those that I respect. And so I'm about nine and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm gonna cry, here I go. It, it's gonna happen and when it happens, I'm gonna let it out and it's gonna make this pit in my stomach feel better but I couldn't really cry on demand. And I didn't know, know how to cry in the way that they were telling me to, because I think that part of those presumptions, especially when you're talking about gender, if I'm not crying as a girl or as a woman, then that can only imply that I'm holding it in. And so those messages kind of started to sink in a little bit. And I'm thinking, am I holding it in? What am I doing wrong? But Thankfully, again, because my mom never really raised me that way in her home, that lasted about a hot minute before I recognized, yeah, that's not, that's not me. That's not how I function. That's not how I express. And more importantly, that's not how I process. And I think that processing pain, especially processing pain from an individual and authentic place became so important you know, as an understatement, you know, became so important in my life at that time. That was, my, that was not my process. Emoting is not my process. Thinking and isolating is my process. Affection, not my process. Removing myself from affection, very much my process. That's really especially interesting to me, because I'm just thinking in terms of well, in terms of a few things, because like, again, me speaking as like a cis male, while I was never necessarily uh, discouraged from crying, especially in times of tragedy, there was kind of a a given presumption, for lack of a better word, that I was supposed to kind of hold in a little bit. It, like, especially in doing funerals, for example, like I was kind of encouraged to kind of be strong for the women and children who are really having a tough time and don't know how to to kind of compose themselves. So I kind of learned early on that I need to, for the sake of appearance, at least, I need to hold in, not cry in public or anything like that. And I feel like maybe, again, speaking to what you're speaking to, that kind of stayed internalized in me growing up because there are times where I feel like I do need to cry or feel like I should cry. And even more often nowadays, even like 
the older generation, my family, they encourage you to cry more often than they did back in the day. But I kind of have a tough time laying it all out. But then in times when I actually try to be strong and go about my day, say, go work or drive to work after a tragedy, just try to block all the, the tragedy in the back of my mind, that's when I cry. Yeah. And I'm not sure what that really speaks to if when I try to cry, I can't cry. But when I at most off guard, if I'm just say driving to work, for example, after finding out something horrible, that's when I kind of let the tears out. I'm not sure. Was that, was that say to you, you think? As, as far as you're concerned? Um, I guess as far as my concern, I guess the wider, because I feel like my situation isn't unique. I feel like a lot of people are kind of in that boat of, I want to cry, but I feel like I need to hold in or yeah. I don't know how to hold in that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely makes sense. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is so important, especially, especially if we're talking about trying to process things that impact us, you know, tragedy, sorrow, uh, stress, you know, happiness, there are things that affect us that don't always have to be sad. But when things affect us and we have trouble understanding what we're going to do with this impact, that's a process. You need to go through a process in order to make it make sense to you. You know, it's kind of one of the questions I ask, make this make sense to me. Can you make this make sense to me? And sometimes you have to ask that of yourself. This thing affected me and it's not making sense. Can I make it make sense? And so that process that we put ourselves through in order to better understand it is crucial because when we engage or when we're forced, you know, to kind of engage in that process, because we're so stressed by the impact, we are simply going to reach for the thing that is closest to us. And I have a feeling that in a case that you're kind of describing, if we generalize that, sometimes what is closest to us is not focusing on the processing at all. Sometimes the process just kind of happens of its own accord when you're not consumed by it, when you're not focused on it. So then in that case, it would be a more natural process. And one that should be encouraged, to be honest. I agree. And I can zero in on that word process. I, I'd agree that it's very much a process that you can't really plan for. Like, because in my case, particularly, like in more recent times, at least, like I've been going through some stuff that's been kind of difficult. And I kind of felt like I didn't have the chance to kind of process it and kind of check in with myself to kind of a, a chagrin, I guess. And it's not until two, three, maybe even five, six months later where I'm like, oh, wow, I was really going through it. I was really affected by this particular tragedy, by this particular occurrence. And I'm still dealing with the ramifications of that five, six months later. It's hard to kind of say you need to, in, in my case, at least, it's hard for me to say I need to process something when the processing doesn't necessarily take place until months down the line where I actually, while I'm outside of that situation, then I actually have the space to kind of analyze it. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think that one of the best analogies I can use to describe that is a car accident. And I know that sounds really strange, but if we kind of just think about this as an example, you, you are in a fender bender and it's shocking. That is what I would call acute, acute stress in that you don't really know what happened. 
You haven't necessarily processed the events. You're just checking 10 fingers, 10 toes. I have 10 fingers, 10 toes. They have 10 fingers, 10 toes. Okay, now what? So then when you move from acute stress, then you move into the quote unquote trauma of the experience. Now, obviously this is just kind of my perspective in the way that I look at this. So you go from acute stress and then you move into trauma. Oh my gosh, this thing happened. Wow, this is crazy. I need to gather my bearings and determine what to do next. So when you're on the street, you know, in the intersection of this fender bender, you're not really quote unquote, processing. I was driving this speed. It's not until you kind of gain some distance. And for some people, the distance can be when the police show up, if the police show up, you know, the distance can be when the police show up. Um, and now it's all starting, you know, to make sense. And I can sequence it. Sometimes it happens two or three months after the fact, because you either get distracted or it's not time and you don't have the capacity to make sense of it. It could be any number of reasons, but to be honest, it doesn't matter so long as you ultimately get to a point where it does make sense. When you process successfully, then you can reflect successfully and hopefully set yourself up to inform any future experiences or stressors. Absolutely. And I think that like once you have that kind of space to kind of analyze it and process it, it feels like it feels like making peace with yourself to a certain extent. And like I really like the analogy that you gave as far as car accidents. I've never been in a car accident myself, but I have very, very close call some four or five months ago when it was dead of winter, horrible conditions. And make a long story short, my car screwed in the middle of the road and I didn't hit anybody. I didn't hit anything, thankfully. But like when it first happened, I kind of my first instinct was to just kind of reposition my car and then just go back my way because it, it didn't really hit me. And then it's not until about 20 minutes after the fact, I'm still driving and that's when the tears started flying. And I just felt really shook about the whole thing. And that was the moment where I kind of had to process it. I Even though it didn't, I didn't necessarily get over it until sometime after that. It was really tough for me to even get behind a wheel again after that. But to first start processing, that's kind of the first step to kind of healing, for lack of a better word, for, for me at least. And that's when it became, it goes to what you were speaking of, like once you're able to process it, that's when it kind of gets easier to kind of deal with, cope with, and cope from, to put in my own words, basically. And no, we're actually going to share words because one of the things, and you might know this, Jam, but my field loves acronyms. Boy, do they love acronyms. You go to a workshop and everything is going to be reduced to an acronym. And these acronyms are really weird and they don't ever make any sense, but they're fancy and they're sexy, you know? And so they end up just, I don't know, being a part of so much of this education. So in honor of the acronyms within mental health, one of the things that I will teach the people that I work with is this concept of CPR. And that is coping, processing, and reflecting. And when we are affected, when we are impacted, if we're going to do this right, you have to recognize that you cope first, then you process, then you reflect. Coping, we don't care what you do. We do not care. Coping, and I'm gonna be a little crude when I say this, but coping is like orgasm face. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't, nobody cares. 
it's just a thing that is happening and nobody needs to apologize for it or judge it in any capacity. And so then once you get through that coping phase, you can then begin to process and sequence the order of events or at least the way that it affected you. Now, this entire process is so crucial because it ends up in reflection, coping, processing and reflecting. If you have not processed successfully then by the time you get to that reflection stage, it's quite possible that your reflection of the events is going to be wrong or inaccurate. If your reflection is inaccurate, then it begins to build an inaccurate narrative. And for too many people, that inaccurate narrative involves something negative about them. I didn't cry enough. I waited too long to process and it really wasn't that bad. You know, these are kind of the, the ways that we reflect on these experiences, especially if we did not process these experiences the way we should have or supposed to. You know, and so if we didn't do it the way we should have or are supposed to, then our reflection is going to be faulty. So then it informs us in a way that is faulty as well which does not leave a good foot forward, you know? And so giving yourself the space, especially without judgment, kind of as you're saying, just let it come when it comes, you know, is going to be the best thing you could do to set you up for success so that reflection is on point. I 100% agree. And uh, I really like this, this process, this acumen of CPR. Is there, for listeners kind of wondering how to kind of get themselves to cope and like, Keep in mind that, like, as we've been saying a few times already, then the whole processing thing comes when it needs to come, not necessarily when you want to come. But can you speak to listeners trying to who may be curious to practice CPR? Yeah. So I have to go down memory lane with everybody and talk about, you know, those those significant tragedies that I experienced when I was younger and the the level of devastation that my family had faced for years just simply because of the nature of that tragedy. And I don't want to say it's in the book just to entice people to read, but I am so open about these experiences that it's in the book. And so in this kind of just weird amalgamation of impact to my family. There is no way that I, my brother, my sister, or even my mom would have ever been able to walk away from that experience and that tragedy had we not coped, processed in our own ways. And each of us were different. And it was crucial because then by coping my way, my way is isolating. My mom's way is emoting. My sister is going to be more affectionate. You know, my brother is going to be more affectionate. They're going to be, you know, kind of people that want to be with other people. I, you won't see me for six months. When I am hurting, you will not see me for a very long time because I'm like a dog. I have to just go away in the woods, tend to myself, and then I'll come back, you know, and because I was able to do that without apology or interruption or even expectation, give or take a few aunties, you know, that would tell me I needed to let it out. Because I was able to do that, I could go and move into the grief process in a streamlined way. So that when I reflected back on this tragedy, I can say, yeah, that was awful. Not, I was awful. And so many times people that get affected by tragedy, loss, stress, whatever that may be, really reflect on something negative about their own 
experiences or something along those lines. And so I think if we look at CPR, the first thing that you need to do is commit to being unapologetic. Absolutely commit. If you need hugs and cuddles, then you take your hugs and cuddles. If you can't get them from a person because you happen to be unintentionally isolated, then you reach for a pet or somebody else's pet, a wooby, a stuffed animal, whatever. You just need to be unapologetic about whatever it is that helps you ground because that's basically what coping is, I think. You know, it really just helps you ground. And then once you move from that phase into processing, you're so much better equipped to be authentic in how you do that, how you interact with your own process. I really want to zero in on what you said about the kind of like isolation. Like you said yourself that like when you're really at your worst, at your most grieving, you feel like you need to kind of decompress basically for about six months. And I find myself being the same way sometimes. But in my case, at least, it can be a double-edged sword. Like I'm very much a person who kind of feeds off the energy of, people to kind of being around people kind of makes me happy. But when I'm in that kind of grief stage, I need to kind of take a step back and kind of decompress to myself. But in some cases, if I isolate myself away from the people who I get my energy from, I end up kind of feeling worse. So for people who may be in a similar boat, can you speak to how to, for lack of a better phrase, cope with isolation when you need, when you feel like you need to isolate. Right. Okay. So what's interesting about that is I think you're kind of presenting a dichotomy as well in that you can find that isolating at certain times is going to be very effective for you. But at the same time, you also take comfort from people, you know, being around people. And so one of the things that you want to do, and this is a big ask, but you want to understand what your instruction manual is. Everybody, we, we should all have an instruction manual with troubleshooting in the back. And with this instruction manual, with me, for example, anybody that comes into my life and I can recognize that they are going to be a significant person in my life, I will tell them how I process impact long before I'm ever affected long before I'm ever impacted. And so then I can say, Hey, by the way, being in my life means that if you ever see me affected by something devastating, something debilitating, something stressful, this is what I do. So because I do this, this is what I'm going to need from you. Are you okay with that? You know, and in a situation that you're describing, if you are alone and you, you know that that is not healthy for you, you reach for whatever you can whatever you can. And I know I'm probably getting a little more technical than you may have asked, but setting things up in a way that resembles routine could be very, very important for someone who is isolated at a time when they don't need to be. And what that looks like by routine is I know that I can't be with my people as often as I want to. So maybe what I'm going to do is every Friday, I'm going to call and leave a message for someone. And even though you might not be able to have a direct interaction, just that slight interaction, you know, can feel very relieving. And for someone who does isolate, despite the fact that they get so much comfort from being with people, you definitely tell the people in your life with that same instruction manual, your role in my life is so important to me in helping me recover from this. But for the next two weeks, I'm going to be kind of going it alone. 
and I will check in, you know, after that, will you be there for me when I do? I agree. I think that's very good advice. Like in my experience with anything, I guess, like communicating is always the best way to kind of get through somebody as far as just speaking your intentions. And then especially when your intentions come with, uh, I can't think of the right word, but like when your intentions come with saying, I need to do this for two months, I need to take a step back for a minute. Then that kind of, it helps define where your relationship is and where it needs to be, where you need to be, I think. So I think that's important. Uh, I guess on that same note, I also want to ask, because I what I really love about this conversation so far is that you've come with a lot of terms that I wasn't aware of. Like even when I was speaking about the car theme earlier, like you defined it as um, acute stress, which I, I never heard the phrase for that before, but it perfectly describes what I was going through. But in times like, say, when you have to kind of isolate or take a step back and you need you need the words to kind of uh, speak your truth, but you're not sure what those words are, is there a way to kind of navigate that? Get a thesaurus. And I, okay, so, okay, the better way, if I were to be a little more professional, <laughs> what I would say is get the feelings wheel. Have you seen the feelings? I'm familiar wheel? with the feelings wheel. Yes. Oh, for someone who doesn't have a lot of feelings or emotions, I love this thing, you know, because especially I don't want to make it all about trauma or all about, you know, the clients that I work with. But those of us that have really been affected by trauma, um, especially if that trauma begins to move into something that would resemble post-traumatic stress, our feelings and our emotions get reduced to something very, very extreme, sad, fear, anger. And if they did not process that experience correctly, accurately, then they are going to move into post-trauma feeling as if they are only a person who can experience sadness, fear, or anger. And that is just not necessarily true. And so if you take a look at the feelings wheel, you can see so many other ways of describing what it is you're experiencing that is going to resonate you know, with your soul. And I don't use that lightly. You know, you, most people, even those that don't really understand who they are, don't really know themselves well because of how many projections society puts on us. I think even those people know what it feels like when something moves through their system and the movement is right. We might not always have the terminology or even have the confidence in order to be able to express what feels right in our systems, but we know it. And so if you can identify what that feels like in your system and then you get exposed to language, it's much, much easier to begin to not only relate to that language, but then also integrate it. I really like the sound of that. And I, I think even consider the feelings wheel in like when you're struggling to find the right words. So I, I thank you for bringing up the feelings wheel. I don't think we've ever mentioned the feelings wheel in an episode. So thank you for <laughs> introducing that to my audience. And um. I feel like we're at a good point where like we can kind of like break now. Like I think we've, I try to keep these like short to like a half hour, 35 minutes for people who may not necessarily have the time for it. But before we get out of here, is there any like last minute words, advice or anything in particular you want to address to the people listening right now before we get out of here? Yes. Um, I cannot emphasize enough being unapologetic. And I know that there are so many Instagram posts that are telling you, oh my God, you need to just be so unapologetic with yourself and love yourself and body positivity and all of these different types of things, which are great. 
but it's pandering and it's condescending. Because when we're talking about being unapologetic, we're not talking about with the dress that you're wearing or the way that you are uh, manicuring your facial hair. You know, that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about being unapologetic about how you recover from trauma and stress and what, how you cope with it, how you process it, really recognizing that that process, it's going to exist whether you're managing it or not. If you don't manage it, it's going to come out sideways and you don't want that. But if you do understand, I don't have to apologize for isolating. I don't have to apologize for wanting cuddles. I don't have to apologize for making this funny face when I'm trying to cope with stress. I just need to do it so that I can be done with it. You know, you want to be efficient in getting through tragedy. Everybody does. Stop apologizing and you'll get through it so much faster. I love the sound of that. I definitely want to co-sign that message. I think that is a perfect message to end on. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for coming here. But before we get out of here, there's one more thing that we have to do. And you may be familiar with it as, since you've said you've listened to it before, but I like to end every episode with a segment I like to call giving people their flowers, where I let people know why I pre specifically my guests know why I appreciate them and why I appreciate you in case we never speak again. So I appreciate you First off, for reaching out and asking to come on this podcast, I'm always going to appreciate when people have a message they want to to reach an audience like this for. That I that always makes me happy. But I also appreciate you for coming in and just being as honest and purely unapologetic as you've already said. Like you've from the moment we got into the Zoom room, you were just kind of radiating with this energy, just this curiosity about being excited to come on and all these things you want to share. And I always appreciate that sort of energy. And it can, I can tell that you're definitely coming from a, a, a place of very much honesty. Like you're I always, more than anything, I just want honesty in these conversations and just life in general. So I appreciate you coming from such an honest place. And lastly, I appreciate you, like I kind of alluded to it early, but I appreciate you for instilling me with kind of terms and knowledge I wasn't aware of, like acute stress, like it's naming, as we've kind of talked about through this conversation, naming the pain, the grief, the code mechanisms, that's important to kind of get through that grief process. So I thank you for kind of helping me personally and helping what well, I imagine many listeners name their trauma and get closer to healing from that trauma. And of course, again, I thank you for coming on this podcast. Thank you. I accept your lovely flowers. <laughs> now in my bouquet that I would like to extend to you, I really want to thank you for your intro because the I'm very, very grateful at the fact that you not only say good morning, and I know this may seem trivial, but you say good morning. I think you say good afternoon, good evening, or whatever time of day. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that is so important because so many people feel as if the, the day, the nine to fivers are the only ones who really matter, are the only real consumers. But there are so many night owls that check in at several different times of day and acknowledging them, you know, I think is such a, just a, a very refreshing, you know, thing to hear. So thank you for that. I'd like to give you my bouquet. <laughs>
and I will <laughs> kindly accept it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs>